let's pray together and get started. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have approached today. But we can approach with boldness, not in arrogance, but in confidence, because of what you have done. Your righteous imputation of your goodness and your holiness and who you are to our lives through the atoning work that you have performed makes it possible for us to come into your presence. And I rejoice in that. And I rejoice that it's this grace that's been imputed to us, that's been delivered upon us, apart from works of the law that make it so precious and so good. And I just pray, Father, today to be able to communicate with all diligence and all holiness and all right understanding, Father, what you would have. And I pray for everyone here that they receive from you what you have planned and they would receive it with joy and thanksgiving to go away rejoicing, to be better equipped, to be more encouraged, just in every way to be the fruitful believer that we all desire to be. I thank you for this time with your people. As my, I was able to share with a brother yesterday, there's really just not anything better than this hour with your people. And I'm so thankful. I'm so grateful. And I just praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we look at Timothy, it's interesting to know what always seems to happen, uh, certainly in the first century church and every century from that point all the way to today, is a... Uh, is a form of legalism, a form of uh, Judaism, a form of work salvation gets entered in. It's always it's it's a constant repeating process, and I really it really doesn't matter what theological lens you like to look at Scripture with, because what I found is is that all of them have a tendency to do it. They all have a tendency to come along and say, "Well, we got it right this way, and if you use these lens to look at it, you'll be right, and if you don't, you're not." They all have a tendency to do that, and I've been on both sides of these fences when it comes to some of these things over the years. And, and, and it's nothing new. In Galatians, Paul asked them, who, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That you would so soon turn from grace. So it happened just that quick, this introduction of things. And Paul's dealing with that constantly. He, the, his letters that he writes back to the folks that he ministered to is in a large part dealing with that element. I mean, be honest, have you ever been made to feel guilty about your church attendance or some other such thing in your church life? You know, we, we were asked the, this morning in, in the lesson, what about a man who grows up on an island by himself? What would his cultural view of church be? You think he'd get offended with himself for not attending? <laughs> hey, man, you weren't in church today. I know I was fishing. I'm not going to attend church with you anymore. That's okay, fine. I didn't like you anyway. <laughs> and, and, and so Paul, he's dealing with that. So I want you to see a few things here. First of all, notice right in the beginning, in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. So right off the bat, once again, and in this, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here just to say this, Paul again sets the pace and sets the pattern for who it is that's speaking. An apostle of Jesus Christ. God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. A messenger from God. One who's been ordained by God to give us what we heard this morning, new revelation. Paul's been ordained by God to give this new revelation. The last time we see somebody like this is Elijah and Elijah. 
when they were giving us direction. Before that, it would have been Moses. See, so we understand the company in which this man and the other 12 men are being kept. But he's just simply saying, I'm an apostle. So I'm not here on my authority. I didn't come with my words. This isn't just Paul talking out the side of his head on something he thinks Timothy ought to do. He's saying, this is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and a messenger of the living God. And that's the authority that he operates in. Isn't that interesting how much authority people like to have? You know, you go back and read the Old Testament, you read places like when Cyrus announces that he's going to do something. There's this long list of who Cyrus is before he ever says anything. You know, just uh, just a long list of who he is. Because people love that. They love to have that attached to it. Paul here, apostle, messenger of God, by command of God. Not just because I thought it would be a good idea for you to have this. You ever had people tell you, I thought it would be a good idea for you to have this? only to have it break your heart or, convict or condemn you or some other such thing. Paul's saying, I'm an apostle of Christ. I have been sent here. I have a command from God. I'm here to say this to you because I've been commanded to say this to you. So we have an authority that's been bestowed or was set before us that was bestowed on Paul to give us this truth. And we have insurmountable evidence that confirms what's being, what is written here is true. It's interesting that the early church fathers... From a, from a scriptural standpoint, if you're going to study scripture, those men used enough scripture in their letters to each other that if all you had to compose a New Testament out of were their letters, their letters were sufficient to compose all the New Testament. Think about that for a moment. Their use of scripture in their letters to each other was so sufficient that they could compose a New Testament just from copying their letters. That's using authority wisely. That's taking the Word of God and using it wisely. So we see Paul saying, I, I, I'm, I've been commanded by God to give this to you. The next thing you notice is verse 2. To Timothy, a true son in the faith. I've said this before and I'll say it again. If you really want to minister to somebody, if you really want to work in somebody's life, more importantly, you really want to have an impact in that person's life by coming to them and saying, hey, I've got something for you from the Lord. This chap, Timothy says this and Paul said this over here. You know what you really ought to do is you really ought to minister to that person in such a way that they think of you as a parent. That you take them on like a child. This is what it means to disciple somebody. Somebody who's just been born again, they have, been, they have went from death to life. They've went from an old existence, and a filthy, nasty one, as we're going to see, to this eternal, glorious new existence. They're a born-again believer. You must be born again, right? That's what the Scripture says. You can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. So this concept of being born again, being a new creation, a new child, is so important to the Christian. And Paul simply saying to you, Timothy, my son in the gospel, means he's not his physical dad, but he has a deep hand in his spiritual birth. Now, hold on before any of you get mad at me and say, look what Paul did. The Holy Spirit blows where it wills. It's God who does the work. It was God who birthed Christ in Timothy. What Paul's talking about here is I took you on like a dad. I, I laid hands on you like a dad. I ministered to you like a dad. I taught you these things like a dad. I cried over you. I prayed for you. I dealt with you. I spent money on you. I did whatever was necessary like a dad would do in your life. And because of that, I can say, Timothy, my son in the gospel. And that is sufficient for what Paul is getting ready to tell Timothy. Because the order has been established now. 
the, the messenger from God who is given a command that's talking to his son. I listened to my dad. My dad were to call me today and start telling me something. Yes, sir. I might even think he's crazy, but I'm still going to listen. I'm still going to take it in. I'm still going to show him the respect he's due. I'm going to take what he's got to say because he's my father. He wouldn't be saying this for no reason. My dad doesn't call me to tell me crazy things, just for to be telling me crazy things, at least not yet. He might start. You know, he's always been right. Kind of makes me mad sometimes. He's always right. But he's my father, so I listen. And glean what would be good for me in that setting. And that's what's happening here. And that's what we see going on. So we've set the stage. We've set the stage. This is the conversation that's getting ready to happen. Now, notice verse, the end of verse 2, just to be sure here, is he says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Jesus Christ our Lord. So now we understand how we're operating. We're operating in the grace of God. So we already know what commands being spoken is coming from the grace of God. We already know what's being going to be delivered is coming because of the mercy of God. We already know whatever takes place from this point forward in the rest of this letter, we understand that it has come in the love of God being delivered to us. And I only say that, though, if you get offended through the course of Timothy, God loves you. <laughs> he does. He loves you enough to actually give you Timothy because he didn't have to, right? Could have done it without it. You figure it out. That's the problem with the world today. A lot of dads have done that to their children. You figure it out and walked away. But our God's not that way. So we see. So now we understand where we are. So look at verse 3. He says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some they teach no other doctrine. So now we immediately get to the context. Paul is here to say, I gave you a command to stay in Ephesus. To make sure that those who call themselves teachers are teaching sound doctrine. To make sure that those things that are being said are being said according to the Bible, according to the Holy Spirit, according to the Word of God. That's what he's saying to them. I left you there for that purpose. So Timothy now knows right off the bat he's been called out and said, I gave you a job. You had something to do. You know, I'm always amazed when people say, I don't know what to do for the Lord. Really? The risen Savior has not shown you what to do? Micah says that he has shown you, old man, what is good. To do justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's what he's shown us to do. And that's exactly what Paul's demonstrating here. He's doing justly and loving mercy and walking humbly with God by teaching, reminding Timothy of the job that he's been given to see that sound doctrine's in place. How many of you, I mean, let me ask, let me say this. Are any, is anybody concerned about the, the, the education that American youth get? You're concerned about it because of, from a historical standpoint that they're not being taught the history? You're concerned about it from a patriotic standpoint because they're not being ta taught the things of our country. You're concerned about it from a strictly uh, uh, economic standpoint because we're teaching. Nobody knows how to do anything. We were talking about this yesterday. What's simply been lost, you know, from one generation to the next. My point is, you're very concerned about what we're teaching there. Well, how much more should we be concerned about what is being taught to believers? 
than the whole counsel of the Word of God. It's critically important. It makes all the difference. Now we can get fluffy and easy and all that kind of stuff, and that, that, you know that's okay, I guess, to a place, because everything has an element. But Paul's greatly concerned with that sound doctrine be taught, because what's already started to happen there, where Timothy's at, is the same that's happened everywhere else. Judaizers have started to slide in, and they're starting to introduce the same old thing that they always introduce. Look now, because just because you made a faith uh, profession of faith in Christ, you still need to be doing these legal things of the law. So you who are Gentiles, you need to go get circumcised, you know, because that's just what you need to do. You need to do these other elements of the law in order to be okay. That's what the Judaizers were doing. They were enslaving people again to try to keep the works of the law rather than fully and completely putting their trust and faith in the grace of our Lord and Savior who had delivered them from these things. Now what we've got going on in the world today is kind of a, a perversion. And I try to try to separate ourselves from the Old Testament and the laws of the Old Testament. There's people teaching today that you just, just depart from the Old Testament, you don't need it. You've all heard of churches, we're a New Testament church, right? What about the Old Testament? Because you see, so you can't. So what we have to have is right understanding of it. Because we've got churches teaching no law, and you've got churches teaching all law, right? Nothing but law, no law at all. And Paul and wants Timothy, he's reminding him, look, I, I, that some that they teach no other doctrine, because we have teachers in the church. We have teachers here. There were a half a dozen classes going on this morning, and all of them were teaching doctrine. That's what, that's what it is. They were teaching doctrine. And it has to be the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Him born and alive and crucified buried and rose again. That's the doctrine. That all that we have is trusting in Him. And all of you, some of you are looking at it like, we've heard this before, preacher. Yeah, well, you're right, you probably have. Good news is you're going to hear it again. Because <laughs> it's all there is. There's no end to false doctrine. There's no end to lies. I've said this a thousand times. I'll say it again. You know what? You know, they don't teach you how to know counterfeit money when you work at the bank. They teach you the dollar. Soon it will be bitcoins, but that's another lesson. <laughs> so he says to him, but no other doctrine, nor give heed, verse 4, to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. You know, you don't have to answer, but how many, time, how many times have you got in some theological discussion when you got right down to the heart of it? It was not Scripture. It was some fable. Cleanliness is next to godliness. God helps them that help themselves. First and second opinions is where you find that. Cross-reference in Hezekiah. <laughs> there are countless fables that are brought in. That countless false doctrines. 
countless silly things, fables that would somehow that's going to make me more spiritual. Somehow it's going to get me to where I'm supposed to be. And it's nothing more than a following after a legal trail that's going to take you to a dead end. We're going to talk about the law in a minute because don't, don't think I'm departing from it, but I hope to have a right understanding of it by the end of the service. But there are countless fables that are being promoted as though they're truth. When we know that, before we know the Scripture, we know the wrong thing. When we can say that before we can say the Scripture, we can say the wrong thing. He said, don't follow after those fables. Don't follow after endless genealogies. Let me just without somebody told me, I trace my genealogy back to the starting of this church. Not this Joppa, but a church. And I said, so? That and five bucks will get you coffee at Starbucks. But it won't get you salvation. I don't care if all your relatives are in that church. We all got fam- we all probably can name a church somewhere we got relatives buried, right? I got a letter I told you from my aunt, my aunt Irma Jean talking about our family and people that and most of them passed away and she and she listed and they're all at the Borden c- Cemetery in, in, in Barden, not Borden, Barden. That's the cemetery they're all in, right? That's where everybody who in, sits in this room today is going to end up out back or somewhere else. See, genealogies don't do it either. That's why they had tried to attack Jesus, because he didn't have a genealogy that they could trace in their mind, even though the New Testament clearly gives it to us in the book of Luke and the book of Matthew. That's why the Pharisees, when Jesus was talking to them and said, well, we've never been slaves. We've always been free. We have Abraham as our father. And Jesus said, well, if Abraham had been your father, you would know who I am. See, we'll trace that. We'll trace genealogies like it means something. And that's what was going on in their day. It's all about what Christ has done. It's all about who He is. It's not about some vain fable that I can quote to you. It's not about my relative. My daddy was here before that. Or my granddaddy or somebody else. I mean, I, 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 I can trace. My great-grandfather was a preacher. My dad's a chaplain. I'm a pastor and my son's a pastor. You know what? Unless Jesus Christ entered those men's lives, they're nothing. It means nothing, and it means nothing to the next generation unless the, his, his daughters repent and believe, they will likewise perish. doesn't mean a thing. Quote all the genealogy you want. And Paul simply reminded Timothy, Timothy, say on sound doctrine, don't go off on vain fables. Don't go off on genealogies. People will tell you, tell you this stuff like it means something. And he's saying it doesn't mean something. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, now listen, I want you to know why I'm saying this. Verse 5, now the purpose of this commandment is love from a pure heart from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Because right about now, Timothy's probably going, what? What?" He said, I want you to know why I've said this. He said, I want you to know why I've given this commandment. It's coming, he says, out of a pure heart. Paul has no motive in Ephesus or in Timothy beyond the gospel being preached. He's not motivated by money or namesake or place in the history. None of that. His heart is pure. He wants Timothy to know that that's the only thing he needs to do is be sure that sound doctrine of Christ is being proclaimed. Not legalism, not modalism, not transubstantiationism, not any ism. 
I'm operating from a pure heart. I'm not saying this because I want to be hard on you, Timothy. I'm saying this because my heart's pure on the subject. I want you to know this. Think about the people who ministered to you in your life. Weren't those weren't the ones who were pure in heart to you, who genuinely loved the Lord and genuinely were loving you, were the ones that made the difference, as opposed to the ones who had other motives and why they were saying and doing. When you almost felt like a scalp on the side of their hip, that they'd somehow notched another person. But the ones who genuinely poured into you because they genuinely loved the Lord, that's a pure heart. Paul says, my conscience is clear. I'm operating out of a clear conscience. This is a man who has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. This is a man who met Jesus on the Damascus Highway, who though he himself was, as he himself said, the chief of sinners, his conscience had been cleared. Why? How? Why? Because God had gave him grace that day on the highway. How? Through the faith in Jesus Christ, his conscience was made clear. So he's operating with a pure heart and a clear conscience. He has no motives. I'm saying this to be because I'm supposed to say this. I'm completely clear on what I'm saying. My conscience is good. How many times somebody said something to you, or more importantly, how many times have you said something to somebody else when it really wasn't about their edification? But maybe your conscience wasn't quite where it needed to be. You said something that in the hindsight, man, I shouldn't have said that because I really wasn't motivated out of pure heart and a clear conscience. I was really motivated out of Robin wanting something. Paul's just simply saying, look, this is why I'm operating here. I'm speaking for a specific reason because I've been commanded. I'm an apostle of God. You're my son in the gospel. I love you and I'm concerned about you and my heart's pure and my conscience is clear and my, how does he say it? My faith is unfeigned. King James calls it unfeigned. Other ones call it pure. Still others call it Solid. Think about that. You know what the word here "feign" means? It means without blemish. It was mean. It came from a term that when they would make clay, uh, clay a clay pot pots. That's what I started to say. Clay pots, and they would fire those clay pots. Sometimes they would get a crack in them in the fire. Now, what you're supposed to do is throw it away. You know, when archaeologists dig up a hole in the ground, they find all kinds of clay pot parts. That's what they actually find in. They're finding all the broken ones. All the good ones are something, you know, but they're finding, anyway. So they find that, right? So you're supposed to throw it away. But what people would do, because you know how people are, no, man, you know what? We can probably make that work. I'll tell you what, let's just keep it. Let's rub some wax in it, throw a little dirt on it, and set it on the shelf and turn it to the back and keep that part out of the sun, and we'll go ahead and sell this. And Paul's saying, my faith doesn't have a crack in it. There's no wax rubbed in my faith here. I'm not operating part of the way. I'm on full display for you, Timothy. Everything about what, who I am and what I've done, you know, and here it is. My faith is genuine. He truly believes what he's telling Timothy. I think one of the problems most of us run into is we don't necessarily completely believe the things we're saying. I know it's true because the Scripture says the man said, We believe! Help me with my unbelief. So it's possible, isn't it? But not quite have it the way we should. Paul's saying, I'm operating here in a pure conscience, a pure heart. My faith is genuine. That's why I'm saying this to you. He's saying to him, I love you, Timothy, and I want you to know the truth. And I wanted you to make sure that you are 
instilling that truth to everybody around you. You're the one who's being called to do that. You know what? You might be the only person in your home who's actually uh, able to discern the truth. You may be the one who's called in that home to be a messenger of God to proclaim that truth. You might be the only one. It doesn't matter about male or female. You may have the job in your home. And how we operate is we operate out of love. Because if I start to operate anything other than that, I start to operate in legalism and other things. And it's not love, and it's not compassion, and it's not genuine, and it's not real, and it's not received, and I'm not happy. They're not happy. None of us are happy because we're operating something contrary to what God has ordained. Ever gotten to fight with anybody over the gospel? Trying to convey the message to somebody? You need this right now! None of y'all have done that? Get saved right now! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. I've always said I want to unscrew their heads, pour it in, screw it back on, and treat them like a James Bond martini, shaken, not stirred. I'm going to do like Nehemiah, come off the wall and lay hands on a few people. But that's not a pure conscience. That's not faith unfeigned. See, I, 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 I've come to realize that in, in asking for God to save people, I've quit asking for God to help to say for that person not to do something or cause them to stop doing something. Okay, please tell them to quit drinking, Lord. Please tell them to quit smoking. Please tell them to quit running around. Please, you know what? No, no more. What I do now is say, Lord, fill them, deliver them, become paramount in their lives, take over. Because when He takes over, all the other stuff's going to go away because darkness that has no light with fellowship and the things of God are going to push out the things of the world. So when God starts to fill up, the other things got to go. The temple filled up so much that the priest had to stand outside and they were working for God. What do you think the things of the world are going to do when God shows up? Be like cockroaches under a couch. That's never happened at y'all's house? Come on. Some of y'all in the south, you know them great big palmetto ones. They fight big like, what are you doing, man? Put the roof back on. He says it's important in verse 6, he says, For which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk. Vain jangling, King James calls it. Idle talk. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. To start rattling off stuff because that's what I heard sometime in the back and I don't really know myself. I haven't studied it. I haven't looked after it. I really don't know. I'm not being led of the Spirit to say these things. I just start rattling off stuff and I start chasing after stuff and I just start talking instead of saying on the truth of God's Word. Isn't that what happened in the garden? Hath God said? And then Eve immediately started looking at it going, no, 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 that's good to look at. Good to make one wise. Good to eat. What happens? Vain janglings start to take over when there's not sound doctrine. You got a whole world full of it. All you got to do is turn on CB, TBN and start listening, or CBN, whatever it is. I don't even know what it is anyway. Turn on. There's so many. There's, it's all over the place. I heard the lady say, uh, "You probably seen it." They heard the lady say, "Yeah, we were praying. You know, we got power over the weather. So I, when the tornado come down, we just prayed, and the tornado went back up." Then she proceeded to say, but we never fly in bad weather. And I was thinking to myself, well, if you can make a tornado leave the ceiling, what's you got a problem riding in bad weather? 
That's a vain jangling based on falsehood, based on fables and genealogies and things that aren't true. It's based on the fact that I think I've done something and I've accomplished something in the works that I've done. I've got circumcised. I tried to keep the law. I'm the member of the right church. I got the right translation. I'm doing the right thing. I'm being where I'm... I got it. Well, you don't have it apart from Jesus Christ. I don't know how else to say it. And and Paul is telling Timothy, make sure that you stay on sound doctrine. Now, sound doctrine will keep you in line. Somebody asked about the law, and I said, it reminds me of the rails on the bridge. Unless you go to Keys, right? You take that little, you know, it's pretty narrow. And them rails sit up there, and if you start rubbing the rail, you know you're about to have a wreck. You're about to have a serious problem. That's how the law is. Because the Bible tells us very plainly in Isaiah that this is a highway of holiness that he's put his people in. And though you go astray, you will not be, though you will be a fool, you will not go astray. I said it backwards. A place where no wild beast can come into. But you can veer off. And that's what the law is for. And that's what we're actually going to look at. Now that I've given you the introduction, let's start the sermon. Verse 8, but we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Sounds reasonable to me. We know the law is good if it's used lawfully. Isn't that part of our problem today in our society? Isn't that the struggle that most of us, I would, I would venture to say that most of you are struggling not with things that go on per se, but the, the, the complete random application of the law. I just read this morning something about that... Um, Certain groups were being turned loose while other groups were being kept. And it's a random application of the law. Law is good when it's used lawfully. That's why the lady's blind. She's got her face covered, right? Holding the scale. Face is covered because justice is supposed to be blind. It's not supposed to know. It's just supposed to wait. This one, oh, this is it. That's it. So Paul is telling Timothy, the law is good when it's used lawfully. Have you ever been beat over the head with some law? In church, made to feel like you're worthless, useless, not able. Why even try? Because I'm so bad. Can't keep up. Can't do it. Can't do anything. Well, you know what? Here's if you're doing. Let me put it this way: If I ever I were to learn one of you were committing adultery on your spouse, I'd have to come to you and say, "Hey, that's adultery. Stop." I'm sorry you feel bad about it, but you claim to be a member of Joppa and you're committing adultery with your spouse. That's a sin, and I'm required to remind you that that's wrong and you need to stop. And you get offended over that and it beaten over the head with it. Repent, right? Come back to the fold. Come back to God. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But just beating you over the head... Hey, you know, you're supposed to dress this way when you come here. I had a brother apologize to me this morning and say I didn't have a good shirt. I said, I don't, you're wearing one. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. That's good. I wore a suit and a tie today because I wanted to. I might not next week. I don't know. You know the rule of my house. What's clean gets worn. <laughs> Verse 
And we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Note verse 9. Now look at this. He says, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. Now here's where the rubber starts to meet the road. Because there's a lot of things we need to say here. First thing is this. Scripture very plainly tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seek after God. The Bible says they've all gone astray. They've each turned to their own way. None are righteous before God of their own accord, their own strength, their own ability, their own keeping of the law. There's none. So to say that this doesn't apply to me somehow? No. You're not righteous by yourself. You don't have it. I don't care how much of the law you kept. I don't care how much you're trying to keep right now. You can keep 99.9%. It's not enough. Heard Ed Lacey say it this way, trying to be, uh, keep the righteousness of the law in your own strength is like trying to take a BB gun and shoot across the galaxy and hit a postage stamp dead on every time you pull the trigger. I've been to the fair. I can't make it hit the back of the canvas. I've been with these guys when they've been practicing the shooting. The people who guard the church, they go and practice pretty regular. I can't hit nothing. See, you trying to do it on your own is just that foolish. So there's none righteous. So if you sit here today and say, well, this list of names is listed down here, that don't really apply to me, preacher. I'm not really any of them things. Really, let's read this. He says, the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly, for the sinners. For holy, for the unholy, and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, or for perjurers. If there is anything, any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, I would say that every one of us are guilty of at least one of these. And if you say no, then you're guilty of lying. I'm guilty of lying. But here's some good news. That's the point of the law. That's the reason the law cannot be dis uh, uh, taken away from the New Testament. That's the reason you can't say, we don't worry about the Old Testament. We don't worry about the law. We don't preach that here. Because how do I bring a sinner under conviction but by the preaching of the Word of God, which includes the Old and New Testament, which includes the law of God. Psalms 19 says the law of God is perfect in converting the soul. Paul said, I did not know what covetous was until the law told me. Now, he was always covetous. He always, he, As a little boy, he coveted his buddy's playthings. All you got to do is go in the nursery and see that worked out. You don't believe me? You should volunteer. Go in there, and the, one of the little young'uns will have something, and he's over there playing just as gentle and nice and happy as he can be, not being bothered by anything. And then the other little young'un will go over there and go, whack! And this one starts pitching a fit, and he wipes what he's got left and whacks that one over the head for taking it. And this one, whack! And then both of them are crying, and the nursery worker's going, ah! Help! You say, that's just silly, preacher. You should be more dignified than that. You ought to go in the nursery. 
you ought to try being y'all's pastor. I've had adult versions of this conversation, okay? Preacher, just bop them and be done with it. Paul said he wouldn't know covetous but by the law. And because when the law came, sin was revived and he died. He rightly understood his sin against a holy God. God gives us the commandments so that we know how far we've strayed from Him, so that we know what sin is, so that we know how we have denied the faith as an unbeliever, how we have become unholy and profane in all that we say and do. That's the reason for the law. The Jews were judged by the law. Gentiles perished without the law. They didn't even get a chance to hear it unless they repented. He says, knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous person. Jesus is the only righteous one. He's the only one who kept the law perfectly. He's the only one who kept it complete. He's the only one who could not be charged with any wrongdoing according to the Word of God. There was nothing they could say, and yet still they said, crucify Him. Give us Barabbas. Give us the Son of the Father, and we reject the Son of God. You say, preacher, what are you trying to convey. I want you to understand if you don't get anything else out of this that unless Christ Jesus enters your life reveals to him to you who he is reveals his holy righteous state against your unrighteousness and causes you through the eternal presence of the living God to be convicted of your unholiness and your unrighteousness next to Him, and that you have no hope in your current status unless Christ intervenes and changes your heart. You could try to keep every stroke and dot and tittle of the law and still, and still be rejected because you never kept all. You say, well, how do you, can you prove that, preacher? I sure can. You don't have to turn there, but if you want, you can. In Luke chapter 17, we find the, par- the teaching about the ten lepers. And we most of us probably know the story. Jesus had left Jerusalem, and he'd come into Samaria, and he's coming through Samaria, and he comes into a little village there in Samaria, and there's ten lepers stuck over to the sides. Now, for a little context, lepers, when you had leprosy, the first thing you had to do was announce, Unclean! You know, you've seen it. Now, unclean. I'm a leper. I got the disease. You can get next to me. Kind of like we've been doing for the last year and a half. COVID! COVID! Right? Interesting enough. Trust the science. Never mind. I'm not even going there. I'm not even going there. So that's what these ten men were doing. And when they seen Jesus come in, of course, the word about Jesus had been everywhere. And they knew now we got some hope. So they immediately call on him. Son of God, have mercy on us. And Jesus said, go and present yourself to the priest. So they hightail it to go present themselves to the priest. And as they were going, the scripture says they were made clean. 
So as they were going, they're made clean. Now, we have stopped there for a moment and think about what is being taught in Leviticus chapter 14. And you probably want to go home and read this because it's like 56 verses, but go back and check it out because Leviticus 14 is the law concerning leprosy on what was supposed to be done. And the law concerning leprosy said that when a man wanted to enter back into the kingdom, he had to get approval from the priest so that the priest would have to come outside of the city to the priest or to the leper, get the leper, examine him. If the, leper, if the priest said the leper was okay, he could come into the city, but he could not come into his personal tent. He had to spend seven days in purification, and at the end of those seven days, then he would come and make an offering, and then he was allowed to come back into full fellowship with the people of God. That's what the requirement was. Now, when he went to the priest, the priest did not cure him of leprosy. Make the mark here. This is the important point. The priest did not cure him of leprosy. All the priest did would go, use Josh as an example, look it up. Yeah, that spot's okay. You seven days, you can, we'll, we'll take up your offering and you can come in. If he looked at his arm and said, no, But the priest does not heal him. Okay? Back to the New Testament now. Back to Luke 17. When they ask for help, Jesus says, show yourself to the priest. Go and keep the law. The law was not going to heal those men of leprosy. The law was not going to change their condition. But one man, when the ten were cleaned from the leprosy, understood through the grace of God what had happened. One man knew grace had been ministered to him. One man realized that it was not me going back to the priest that had done this. It was not me keeping the law that had done this. But Jesus Christ, the King of glory, is the one who has done this. And he went back and he praised him. And he says, where are the other guys? There was ten of you and there's only, you know, there's only one of you now. I don't know about all that. He's just praising God. And Jesus says to him, your faith has made you whole. And you say, why are you talking about, preacher? Now, when this man goes to make his offering, when he goes to the process that we just talked about, when he goes and does that, he knows that he is... Free, blameless, forgiven, righteous, not because he did what the law commanded, but because Christ had changed his life. And now, when he goes and does it, the, he, oh, he, the priest looks, you're clean, come on in. He made the offering, did everything just like he was supposed to. Now he fully and completely desired to keep what he could not keep before because God had changed the inside. God had cured him of his leprosy. problem that all of us have is legalism doesn't cure my leprosy. Legalism doesn't cure my sinful heart. Hebrews says that the priests offered annually 
and with the offering of the sacrifice, could never take away sin. It cannot take it away. It masked it for a year. It covered it up for a year. It kept it covered for a season, but it doesn't take it away. Only the faith in Jesus Christ takes it away. And this is why when he tells him that passage in Timothy, when he says it's the law not made for the righteous, that every one of us, the law has impacted us to show us our sinful nature against the holy God and has driven us, as Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says, is a schoolmaster that took us to Christ to show us our need for a Savior, our need for a Redeemer, somebody who would take this off of me and replace it with righteousness. That's what it did. And when that happens in your life, the law is no longer a stone written on the wall. It's on your heart. And you start to live a life that actually begins to please and honor God. You actually strive to keep those things that are commanded in Scripture. I don't have to be told the law that says thou shalt not commit adultery because I love my wife, because I love the Lord. I don't have, I don't, it's written on my heart not to commit adultery against my wife. Because if I got to have a law that says don't commit adultery on your life, then I got a problem. It's no, it's not grace anymore. If I gotta, if I gotta have a law that keeps me from stealing from Jamie, instead of grace, I love my brother, so I wouldn't take from him. If I gotta have that, I got a problem. And if I gotta have a law that says worship God, and I won't do it apart from it, I got a problem. God writes His law in your heart when He saves you, so the very thing that He's commanded you to do that you can't do starts to get fulfilled in your life for the first time ever. So that we're no longer like the world. We're no longer like the lost. We are like Him. That's what Paul once taught in Ephesus. That's what Christ has taught us over and over again. That's what we teach here. That's what we teach here. Because when Christ dwells in you, you consider your brother over yourself. You love your neighbor. You seek his well-being. I could hardly be seeking his well-being when I'm trying to steal from him, take things from him, covet his possessions, lied about him, all these other things. I can hardly love God when I'm not worshiping him and, and desiring to, to honor and glorify him in all my actions. And you can't do it on your own. We can't do it on our own. We won't do it on our own. I don't care how many London Baptist confessions we stack up. We won't do it. But when Christ is in there, when our faith is in him, then those things start to become something we like to do be a part of. So the question is for you today, uh, is your righteousness an imputed righteousness from Christ? Or is your righteousness something you've been attempting to earn on your own? I don't know the answer to that, but you do. You know whether it's been works or it's grace. Because if it's grace, you start to see every one of those commandments that God has made being fulfilled in your life. You desire it i got to tell you, when I'm driving on the bridge down there to Keys, I do not want to get close to the guardrail. I want to be in the middle of the lane. It's, <laughs> it's a pit down there. I don't know. Christ died so His righteousness would be imputed to you. He rose again so you could be justified. He ever lives to make intercession for you when you fail. 
And he's promised to return again and receive all of his to himself. I don't know the answer to where you are, but I do know the answer where we all need to be. We all need to be in Christ. I need his righteousness, not my own. I need the righteousness that comes by faith, not by the law. I need to see the law written on my heart and see it acted out in my life. But I need Christ. And so do you.